Hey, on today's episode, Messiah, discussing the attempts to hasten the Messianic age, what Mashiach actually is about, and how it can be a diversion from the authentic life. I'm Moshe Shambran, and this is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Amongst various different elements in the Hasidic movement, there have been many elements that have pushed for Mashiach, Messianic age. In English, uh, the word would be theurgic, theurgic, the uh, attempt to influence God to bring the Messiah. And there were factions like that. Now in Peshiska, and even still today, perhaps, um, that it's up to us to try to like do things in order to bring Mashiach. Um, in Peshischa, it was almost the opposite of that. The, in no way, no way, of course, was their belief in Mashiach diminished in the slightest, uh, but rather that, that it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to us. Like, yeah, you have this a lot of times. People ask, like, what do you think about this movement claiming this about Mashiach and this about that? And, this, like, it's irrelevant, largely, in my day-to-day, <laughs> into my avodah Hashem, into my service of Hashem. It's not our responsibility. It's interesting, it's fascinating, we hope and daven for it. But in Peshischa, the, the general worldview was that we don't wish to get involved in any mystical enterprise to attempt to influence Hashem's hand. And the role of a Jew, even the greatest tzaddik, even the most pious person of the time, is to have a wholehearted belief in the Messiah and Mashiach, but not to be involved in the esoteric. Because that's a diversion from the real challenge of life. To a Thursday, to your typical Thursday. Don't be diverted from that, would be the call in Peshesca. (laughs) <laughs> it's an incredible story. Uh, I was laughing when I first saw this story. Uh, it brings me a lot of joy. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, the story is, Rabunim said it over. This is quoted in Ma'or Ene Agola, page 139, that Rabunim said, he said, I, I think right now I could bring, at this moment, I could bring Mashiach. I could uh, herald in, hasten the coming. But I start to imagine what would happen. What would happen? The Mashiach's going to come. Messiah comes and he goes to the heads of all the people, the generation, all the great leaders and scholars and rabbis, all the great tzaddikim are going to gather to receive Mashiach, right? And the eldest and most eminent of the time, most eminent and venerated senior rabbi at the time was the Abderav. The Abderav, who throughout Rabbunim's progression and as he grew in popularity sort of became the opponent for lack of a better word of the rubber Um he was very much the leader and the face of the establishment um, and 
so the Abdurav is going to be there, sitting at the head of the long table, and everybody comes together at the Tish, Mashiach Tish. This is where it's at. This, this is happening, and the Abdurav is at the front. And they're going to start talking, right? They're going to have a nice conversation, and they're going to start uh, asking uh, Mashiach a bunch of questions. And certainly, it's going to come up the topic of, like, okay, like, what tipped the scales? What finally brought Mashiach? The Jewish people have been waiting for thousands and thousands of years and desperately yearning for Mashiach. What may. What tipped the scales? What was the final page? And he's going to tell them the truth. If I bring Mashiach, he's going to tell the truth. It was Bonum of Peshischa sitting all the way at the end of the table that helped uh, make it happen. And that's going to be very annoying to the Abderav. It's going to be very annoying to the people in the establishment that for a long time had uh, waged war on Peshischa. So therefore, says Rabbanim, I'm not going to occupy myself with bringing Mashiach. I don't want to cause annoyance to even one Jew. So, I'm going to go about my day. That's the story. It's such a powerful story. Not only does it reveal the way Rabbanim understood himself, how he understood his capabilities, his humor. Um, and not only does it have that, that, that sharp retort to his uh, opponents. Um, but in general, like the, the critique, the way to critique and to bring it out. And I think it's true. I think Rabbanim's mindset that I have to do what I have to do. And I could have all these great yearnings and great like utopian visions of how the world could be, but I'm not going to annoy one person. I'm not going to... if 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 bringing Mashiach hastening is going to trample over somebody. Like, I have to do what's in my domain. And I'm going to focus on being the best possible self. And I think today it's so common and so rampant and people have great ideologies and great ambitions and, and great uh, universalist, utopian dreams of society and things like that. And they could talk for hours and days and years. But what are they, what are you actually doing? What are you doing today? What what's Thursday? What's happening on Thursday? Not Thursday, Monday, Tuesday. Well, meaning today. Enough with the the not enough. Of course, you have all your dreams and ambitions, but really, well, make sure it doesn't become a diversion, diversion of of your task at hand. Reminds me of something I heard from a technology influencer, Gary Vaynerchuk, entrepreneur, who says that. You have to have macro patience and micro speed. Right? Instead of thinking about the next eight years, think about the next eight days. Right? What happens is at a macro, in the, in the long picture, people are super impatient. Right? You want to be where you're headed to. You want to have that, uh, where am I going to be when I'm 30? Where am I going to be when I'm this and that? And then... What happens is, right, I want to be, when I'm 25, I want to be crushing it in this company. Um, but in the meantime, you're impatient and you're making ill-advised decisions and you're just sitting around uh, browsing Netflix and spending time on, on media, whatever it is, right? Spending six hours a day on, on Snapchat. But it's like, okay, because I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on the big term. I'm focused on the big picture. Leave me a little rant. And, and in reality, we have to reverse that, right? This is Vaynerchuk's thing. Super important, he says. If he, uh, The question was, he was asked, you know, if you give one advice to a college kid, 
that's graduating, what would you give? And that's his advice. Have macro patience and micro speed. In the long term, have the patience. Right now, in, in the next, in, in your next day, like how, what are you doing? You got to be on it. My, in the micro, in the in the now, push the pedal to the metal. Um, and, and, and if you apply that, take that out of the business sense, which is true in the business sense, but put it into the uh, in personal life and into Judaism as a whole. Like right now, what do you got to do? And be hyper-focused on that. That was Pesheska. Don't get diverted by, you know, these diversions. And historically speaking, various streams of Jews, particularly in the more Hasidic, Kabbalistic realm, have thought at one time or another that their leader was the Messiah, that their leader is the Mashiach. And for sure, when, when there's a belief that every single one of our actions has a cosmic effect that affects the divine, it has a, a potential for the next step to be taken, well, we should actively go and influence the divine. And throughout history, there's, there's a, a book uh, somebody wrote. His name is Benjamin Hamburger. He wrote a book called Mashiche HaSheker Misnagdehem, The False Messiahs and Their Opponents. And it's a 700-page book of all the numerous and um, eventually destructive movements of all the, all, all the messiahs throughout the generation of people that thought that their leader... Uh, was the Mashiach. And even if it doesn't actually take root or gain a huge steam and following, it usually comes inevitably followed by a, by a devastating slip uh, as it passes. Right? You, you have all that adrenaline and that moment passes by, it leaves you uh, devastated. It, the letdown. Uh, there's a great story, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who we've talked about a bunch of times throughout the podcast. Yaakov Kamenetsky, what a great uh, person and, and exemplar manifestation of Torah lifestyle. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov was once talking to, to a different rabbi in town, and the rabbi was all excited because he said that there's somebody in our community that doesn't keep Shabbat, but I just had a conversation with him, and he committed he's going to start keeping Shabbat. And Rebekah said, interesting, what uh, what was your conversation about? He said, because this guy had some uh, inspiration. He thought, he saw what's going on in the world. There's such crazy things happening. And the guy told him, Mashiach must be coming. This is the store owner tells him, I'm going to close my shop up on Shabbat. I don't want to be open on Shabbat. And Mashiach is, uh, is around the corner. So Rabbi Kamenetsky looked at him and told him, go back and tell him, I assure you that Mashiach is not coming. Yaakov Kamenetsky says, Mashiach is not coming. And he explains, he says, right now, he doesn't keep Shabbos, but he's a believer. He believes in Judaism. He believes in Mashiach. But now, when this frenzy blows over and Mashiach doesn't come, I'll stop believing too. Not only will you not maintain this Shabbat thing. So there's always that that downside of that Mashiach. And, and this couldn't happen in Peshischa, in the worldview of Peshischa, for a couple of reasons. Number one is because there wasn't this Kabbalistic theology in Peshischa. We were doing things not to uh, 
repair the Shechina and the Tikkunim and the Klipas, but is very much grounded in in the real world, in the personal experience, in the psychology, in the development of your character. So it didn't have that Kabbalistic underpinning. And also on the flip side, what it did have was an extreme focus on authenticity and being real and being self-critical and being self-analytical and, and grounded in the world and knowing who you are and where you are. So it's, it's incredibly hard to imagine somebody like that thinking that I'm going to be the Mashiach, I'm going to be influencing the Mashiach. Uh, it, it, it's just an entirely diff, different way of, of viewing each person's mission in this world. While we're on the topic of Mashiach, there's an incredible article that was written by a wonderful, awesome, amazing, wise rabbi lives uh, two blocks down from me here in uh, Maryland who heads up a yeshiva, a local yeshiva here, Rabbi Lopiansky, Rabbi Aaron Lopiansky. Great person, incredible person. And he wrote an article right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic last year. And he was writing that he was getting a bunch of calls and a bunch of sentiments, like people were calling, um, like teachers in schools, that like, we want to know, like, does this mean Mashiach's coming? All this, this crazy, the world's upended, it's locked down, this crazy stuff happening. And like, is there anything else we should be anticipating or dominating for or waiting for the Mashiach? And he pointed out that there, there's two major concerns with this type of sentiment. Number one is a deep ignorance of Jewish history or really any history, right? To, to think that like nothing has ever happened like this before. The world's crazy. We're in such a, if, if you're knowledgeable, in history, it quickly negates any such ideas. The epidemics and pandemics that regularly swept through Europe, the fact that people would commonly die in childbirth, uh, appendicitis was deadly. Death was a, a, a regular function of family life. Uh, the typical account of, of any school or any town there was tragedy that, of, that was common. There were towns would be destroyed by a fire. A simple fire would ravage the wooden homes in an instant, and entire populations would be penniless. Um, and and this never, this type of sentiment of like this never has been, it's never been like so crazy before, and like never has been like anti-Semitism is at an all-time high. Like like really like <laughs> forget about forget about the Holocaust. Uh, but there are even people today that have lived in, in, in countries previously where the class, the legal status of a Jew is second class or third class, right? Where throwing rocks at Jews was the norm, not the exception, right? Like uh, anti-Semitism is at all time high. Like if you think about the actual history, not only in recent history, but in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, it's just... It shows like a, a, a sheer ignorance of the history. Another example, he says, when like people say like never has the Jewish people experienced such a spiritual decline before. Where you have, if you look in Jewish history, like from the mid 1700s until World War II, there was enormous numbers of of Jews abandoning Judaism, and the fact that right now we're in a 
a renaissance of Jewish life is nothing short of a miracle. And while at the same time there is a, a great decline in that as well, and there's much to improve, but like when we try to, this never has this been so bad before, and the this w- extreme way of thinking um, doesn't give us a, a real understanding of events. It doesn't give us that nuance um, and that balance that we need. We need a, says Ravarin, now we need to teach our our. our children history, we need to teach ourselves history more than just dry names and dates. The point is not names and dates. I, I couldn't stand history growing up when I was in school. History was, and we had a Jewish history class, and now I like, it's one of these things that like frustrates me so much looking back is that I love Jewish history. Now I know at least. But when I was in 10th grade, I didn't. I I couldn't. I tried everything to to get out of Jewish history class because it was presented in in a bunch of dates and names and remember this and who's this and who's that and it, it became this very like dry experience and I wish I wish I wish I could go back in time and be able to studiously uh, devote time to really understanding the the life of Jewish history the the heart of it not just those those dry events. Right, to be able to have a, a real understanding of the experience of Jewish communication, Jewish communities in every generation in each place, like what their daily life was about, their hardships, the challenges, the successes, the wounds. Um, Ravarim points out the Pasuk, the Torah itself says to Peter to contemplate the years of each generation. And on the flip side, when you're ignorant of history, um, you start to lose your sense of, of appreciation and gratitude for the times that we live in the incredible gratitude that we owe for the food and the plenty that exists till in, in today the advanced knowledge and medicine and technology the the tolerant governments the incredible um capacities that we have for for spiritual growth for physical growth it's unbelievable and when you, you put on the blinders and say, never has this been before. Like When you lose sight of what was and what people came from, and, and even just in one or two generations ago and what people had to do in order to make a living, in order, uh, it's, it's incredible the amount of gratitude uh, that could get become a casualty in this. That's one problem. And the second problem he points out in this messianic fervor now, aside from the time that it leaves, doesn't uh, actualize and leaves destruction in its behind, most famously in Shabzai Tzvi and Frank and, and a bunch of other false messiahs. But he points out, he says, imagine like this, imagine like this. Uh, a person's walking by a Jewish community on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, where the anniversary of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the first one, the second one, the temples, a great day of, of sorrow and tragedy in the Jewish people. And you pass by this community and, and you engage in conversation with one of the people sitting there um, who's sitting on the ground in the morning and, and their garments are ripped. Uh, they're in the morning and you say, excuse me, what are you crying about? And the guy asks, our temple was destroyed on this day. So what? Uh, you say. The man's confused. He thinks about it. He says, you know, it, it, the, the traditions has it that from the day the temple was destroyed, meat lost its taste. You think meat tastes good now? You think a steak is good? 
From the date the temple was destroyed, meat lost its taste. So you say, okay, meat lost its taste, but that same medrash says, meat lost its taste, but the taste reverted to the marrow. The marach, marrow of the bone, captured that taste. That's the medrash, right? Very cryptic, Kabbalistic thing, okay? So he says, why don't you simply chew the bones and suck the marrow? Right? If, if the whole thing is about the taste, so then get it in the marrow. He says, ah, I lost my teeth. I have dentures and I can't uh, suck the marrow, replies the older uh, gentleman sitting there. So he says, ah, I see. Okay, so you're not mourning the temple. You're mourning your teeth. You're mourning your teeth that you can't get the sake. When society, if we in society identify Mashiach as the solution to our health issues, to our communal issues, to our legal issues, then all we're looking for is a solution for our personal issue. It's nothing to do with Mashiach. Right? We're like that that person sitting there that we lost our teeth and we want our teeth back. Right? It has to do with our bank accounts, with this legal trouble, with uh, this health issue. Right? And, and and that's not what Mashiach is. It's not a... a, a Morning of the teeth. So what is it? The Rambam, Maimonides, points out four things, four aspects, four categories um, that Mashiach brings in by implication what we're missing in the absence of the redemption of the Messianic age. Number one, he says, Mashiach will restore our nationhood by reinstating a central authority. Nowadays, we don't really have a central authority. There's no real head, no structure um, to us being a nation as a whole. We might have very inspiring speakers and inspirational events and very stern admonitions. But everybody does whatever they want to do. Right? There's very little specific follow-through in leadership. Right? So take, for example, the Aguna crisis, which we spoke about on the podcast. The episode, the Aguna crisis. We don't have, we don't have a central authority that could actually enforce Torah values. You could have people that subvert and distort and undermine the Torah and use aspects of Torah law to hurt other people. And we could try our best and we could issue condemnations and we could release podcast episodes about it and we could raise fervor but at the end of the day we're limited in a sense we don't have the apparatus to effectively force the issues to effectively force the torah issues and when mashiach comes mashiach is a political leader in the in all essence right mashiach is going to be that that monarch of the jewish people that has that authority to restore our national significance with all with all its aspects that's one thing second thing that the Messiah will do will be to restore the wholeness of the Jewish people. Restore the wholeness of the Jewish people. Yes, we could rightfully take pride in our achievements as a nation, but the vast, vast majority of our brothers and sisters are walking away. They're not continuing their story. So we can't say like, oh, we're all here in unity. People say this all the time, like, wow, such unity, everybody here together, all the Jewish people, all different types. But if 80 and 90% of people aren't at the table, then we're not. We're not whole. We're not whole. 
We're missing 90% of ourselves. That's the second mission of the Mashiach, to restore all the people that aren't at the table. Third thing is, the Mashiach will restore Torah. Because right now, as it is, we at best only keep a minority of the amount of directives in the Torah, amount of mitzvot in the Torah, because we don't have anything that's dependent on the temple. We don't have anything that's dependent on, on states of spiritual purity and impurity, all the taharos, and much of the agricultural lands, much of the laws relating to the courts, etc. We just don't have those mitzvot. So the third task of the Mashiach is to restore all of the mitzvot, all of the Torah uh, to be performed. And lastly, the fourth thing Maimonides points out is Mashiach will restore the divine presence, the Shekhinah. Even though it doesn't really have a good English way of uh, defining it, but it's uh, that sense of imminence, of real connection. And that feeling of today that perhaps a person feels like there's a disconnect, there's a sense of uh, non imminence or non-connection but of course that's only a, a manifestation of the exile not being in the the full glory in the full manifestation the full sense of imminence that's the fourth thing about mashiach to have that full recognition and feeling that we're sitting at the table we're sitting at the king's table in the words of the kuzari on this last point revarn quotes from a bar salavechik founder, one of the founders of the uh, Yeshiva University from Boston. So he said that people ask, right, we have Eretz Yisrael, we have Israel, we have Jerusalem, we have Yerushalayim, we even have the Kotel, we have the Kaisal. So why are we mourning as intensely as ever? It seems like we're we're sort of back there. We're there. We got, we got it. Um, so he answered, he said, if you ever saw a father and a son that were estranged, they weren't talking to each other. Sitting at the same table because they get together, they have to come together at some funeral or wedding, whatever. They're together, but they're not talking, so there could be one foot of distance between them, but there's thousands of miles between their hearts. That creates an unbearable tension. And not only, not only is it fine, and it's not uh, by coming together, coming together doesn't make it better, not only that, but it intensifies that tension. Right, so to be so close, we're so close. We're so close. We have Eretz Yisrael, we have Yerushalayim, we have the Western Wall. We're, we're so close, but yet so estranged. That intensifies that gap, that mourning. And that's that fourth element. The Mashiach comes and, and brings that manifestation, that palpable manifestation of Hashem's presence, which rectifies that, that gap, that gullus that exile has caused. And ultimately, that's the yearning for that missing peace our yearning today for Mashiach for that missing piece that's just somebody's getting married and God forbid one of their parents aren't there no longer uh, able to attend and that person is crying They're not crying because oh if only my parent was here they would be able to pay for the wedding no <laughs> right that's not what we're yearning for that somebody could hear and be here pay our bills heal our ailments that's not yearning. What real yearning is, is when the child hasn't invited the parent out of spite or the son that has fallen in battle isn't there. Or when the lost daughter is just missing from the picture. 
because it should be a time of such extraordinary joy that emptiness is felt so sharply that sobbing that missing that the the fact that you're at a magnificent you can be at a magnificent event of a wedding and somebody's missing that means that everything's missing and that is that yearning especially when the jewish people when we're at our best when we have torah when we have mitzvahs when we're living in prosperity with everything and everybody there and everything we're wishing for, we look around and we know that a great void still fills us. That pain and emptiness that we feel in exile, that's what we're yearning for. That's Mashiach. With that, we'll call it an episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.